1: On the 12th of July 1958, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Colin Hanton and John Lowe visited a recording studio in Liverpool to cut their first record as the Quarrymen. The man who cut the disc was Percy Phillips, who sadly died back in 1984, so can't share his memories with us. Joining us instead is his grandson Peter Phillips, who remembers visiting the studio as a boy. I'm Laura Davis. And I'm
2: Ellen Cowan, And this is Beatles City. The recording studio was just in a room in his house, is that right?
1: Yeah, so it was an ordinary house in Kensington in the north of Liverpool, which actually is quite close to where Silla Black grew up. And Percy Phillips decided to put a record shop in his front room and then the recording studio was simply the room behind that. And why did the Quarrymen decide to record there? So this was Liverpool's first ever recording studio and everybody who wanted to make a record and there were lots of young people wanting to do that at the time would go there and would cut it there. So he had all sorts of, of people there including Ken Dodd, the comedian who actually went there to record one of his as well. If
2: you enjoy the podcast and want to help us grow and reach more Beatles fans make sure you rate, review and subscribe to the Beatles City podcast. Hi, Peter. Hello, Laura.
1: So can you tell me your, your grandfather would talk about this a lot or was this just sort of a casual thing for him?
2: You mean the Beatles connection?
1: The Beatles connection, yeah.
2: Well, no, it wasn't talked about a lot because it, it was just his job and um, the studio was in the family home. It was just part of, the, part of life in those days. And um, there was a record shop in the front room of the house downstairs And then the recording studio was in the middle living room. And then the place where we'd sit and eat, the uh, kitchen slash dining room, was at the back of the house. When he got older, Grandma used to um, talk about the cavern. When the cavern got demolished, people were paying a pound, apparently, for bricks from the walls. She wanted to know why... Um, Percy didn't receive some remuneration because he was uh, the first man to record the Beatles. But that uh, was just sort of family chat and that would be like later in the in the 70s, you know, after they'd um, demolished the cavern. I thought
1: but you were going to um, say she was going to knock down their house and sell, her, sell the bricks.
2: Well, there's a suggestion. We could still do that. So we didn't really um, discuss it in in any. I d- well, I don't know if you how old you are and if you remember, but during the nineteen eighties, the Beatles weren't really that celebrated, shall we say, in Liverpool. Yeah. Because punk happened, didn't it, in the late seventies, and then throughout the eighties, all this new romantic stuff and drum machines and you know synthesizers came to the fore, and these big uh, big groups that were like analog, if you like, you know, they used bass, drums, and guitar, and keyboards, and um, in the case of the Beatles, various other instruments and sound studio techniques. And it was sort of out of fashion in the 80s. Towards the end of the 80s, people started appreciating them a bit more, I think, and, um, and then throughout the 90s, when Anthology was released, in fact, in 1995, yeah, the Beatles just had this huge... A renaissance, didn't they? And a lot of the bands around at the time started saying that you know, well, these got listen to that music, man. It's just totally perfect. The production, the playing, the songwriting, hundreds of songs, one after the other, all getting to number one. You know, the first few, and then and so ever since the 90s, I think um, the Beatles have been seen as you know the best band the world's ever seen, sort of thing. in that
1: yeah, it's um, quite incredible. Genre. But you do remember him telling you about that? about Oh, their yeah, visit and... we
2: had many, many a chat about it because I'm a musician myself. When I was playing in bands, when I was about twelve or thirteen in Liverpool, and fourteen, I'd go to him to ask advice about, you know, PA systems or. Well, I'm a drummer myself, but I remember on one occasion, Laura, that a, a guitarist. He'd been. We'd been listening to Led Zeppelin, and then we did one of their songs as a cover. He was trying to get this distorted sound on his guitar. I think he had um, a Gibson SG. So I went to see Grandpa with me dad actually one day, and um, and said, you know, me guitarist, he wants to get this distorted sound on his guitar. Me dad and me and Grandpa burst out laughing because they'd spent years trying to get rid of distortion and <laughs> every hum and buzz and crackle. You know, it would to them, you you wanted a pure, clean sound. You know, out of your Um, electronics you didn't want buzzes and clicks or distortion which they saw as a bad thing yeah so when the laughter had died down they went into the workshop which was the studio then but the studio had closed by then but still had all the equipment in it and it was like a little workshop he got this metal box and they and they knocked up a distortion pedal with a, with a button in it and a jack plug in and out, you know, and uh, with a, a button on the front to press and said, here, try that, <laughs> which our guitarist did, and he had it for years, actually. Wow. Just um, an on-off distortion pedal. So how long was the studio open for? He opened it in 1955, and it closed at the end of 1969, so basically 15 years.
1: And what, so his, that wasn't his background, was it? So what made him decide to open a studio?
2: Well, it's an amazing story, Laura, because um, it reflects the the, the times, I think, of Liverpool in those days, because Grandpa was born in 1895, and in 1955 he was uh, 60 years old. Yeah. And he had spent the previous 30 years, from 1925 up to 55 in that same uh, house at number 38 Kensington, which you can see today is still there. It's got a blue plaque on it now uh, that was put there in 2005. Mm-hmm. But um, he had spent 30 years as a battery charging was his uh, job. One of his first jobs he had as a young man after he came back from the First World War, where he was injured in France. In 1921, he took over the Raleigh bicycle dealership in uh, Brunswick Road in Kensington, mm-hmm. in the Kensington area. And then um, he was selling bicycles, which at the time, you know, 19, 1921, were technology themselves, you know, gears and sprockets, you know, bicycles were technology, you know, they were seen as a, a new, you know, exciting form of transport. Yeah. So he was selling bicycles to the people of Liverpool. And then Uh, a couple of years later, he started selling motorbikes. And so when he got into motorbikes, repairing motorbikes as well, all self-taught, of course, you know, as a lot of these pioneers in those days were were self-taught, you know, whether it was Marconi or John Logie Baird. And and grandpa, Percy Phillips, he became uh, very interested in, in batteries because there were batteries on motorbikes, of course, to make them run and to start them and for the electrics on them. And so he became fascinated by batteries and electricity because there was no electricity in those days. When he was born, Laura Wright, 1895, as I said, there was no telephone, there was no electricity, there was no aeroplanes, there was no cars, there was no no anything really that we think of today as our basic technology. You know, photography had been discovered uh, some years before, but most people had never you know, seen a photograph or had a photograph taken. And there was certainly, you know, the the Wright brothers had, had, uh, hadn't had flown yet. Powered flight was still years away.
1: It's incredible, so, isn't it? We tend to think that technology's moving very quickly at the moment, but in his lifetime, everything had changed.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. That story is, you know, the whole... St- you know, Liverpool has got so many stories, hasn't it? You know, what a city, what a place, what a history. Yeah. The stories that exist the, the history of Liverpool. Many of them have been told of course, many of them haven't and one of the biggest stories if not the biggest story about from Liverpool is the Beatles and, um, but this is another story about Liverpool, from Liverpool the Percy Phillips story which hasn't really been told or hadn't until we had this event uh, during the uh, Beatle week recently so during the first few years of uh, of grandpa's life, you know, in the first few, the first 50 years, should we say, of the 20th century, all these things appeared in, in people's lives. All these pioneers, these guys were inventing, discovering, adapting, developing this technology, you know, and electricity was one of them. You know, no one in Liverpool had electricity in the 20s, 30s, 40s. It was only after the Second World War when, um, you know, Liverpool was very badly uh, devastated by bombing yeah. in the in the war and there's photos you can see which are just totally shocking of church street just totally flattened you know just rubble and of course when john paul and george were kids and um, you know they were born around the 40s john in 40 paul i think in 42 or 3 and george uh, 43 you know, if they used to come into the city with their, with their families at the weekend or, you know, it was just a load of rubble. <laughs> mm. You know, the place was totally trashed. Lewis's is there opposite the Adelphi on the corner was just a, a burnt out husk, you know, like the bombed out churches now. Yeah. And then Church Street and down by the Victoria Monument was just literally piles of rubble. So as they rebuilt Liverpool there during the, the 50s, it became electrified. And so Grandpa's battery charging service, because electrical things people had in those days were basically just radios. There there was no other electrical stuff in the 50s and before. So they'd come and charge their batteries up to run their radios off. So once people had electricity in the house, it was no longer necessary. But what, what happened was, Grandpa had developed this interest in technology, you know, and inspired by these pioneers who were inventing and discovering things. So he opened this battery charging service and became the bloke in Liverpool to go to for your batteries.
0: Wow!
2: So during the war, he uh, was employed by Burton Wood Air Base. Anyone who goes on the on the motorway from the rocket there will uh, have gone past Burton Wood Services. But uh, at that exact spot there was a huge american airbase during Mm -hmm. the second world war burton wood airbase grandpa used to provide them with batteries and charge their batteries up and so he was a regular visitor to the airbase he'd go at night as well on his motorbike to the skyline club which was on the base where he saw like uh, glenn miller you know and harry james which were some of his favorite music oh wow and he'd you know do the battery thing Also at that time, a lot of guys were coming, uh, you know, uh, forces, personnel from America, and they'd bring boxes of records, singles, you know, like Sun uh, Records, Chess Records and others. Yeah. uh, Dance band music, blues music, you know, from the south. Yeah. And um, Grandpa started getting these boxes of records from them, and so he ended up, when the battery business had gone off, he was thinking, what can I do now with the shop? So he turned it into a record shop, and um, it became the place to go in Liverpool to get your American music, you know, your blues and your early R&B and, of course, like dance band music and country music, which was uh, grandpa's favourite. Hank Williams was his favourite singer, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So that was how that sort of started, it, uh, the music side of it. He opened a record shop and it became... That was in about 1954.
1: And that was in the <laughs> front ri- the front room of the house?
2: Downstairs, front room of the house, yeah. Incredible, which had been a shop for 30 years, you know, when it was the battery shop, but it's right, now okay. a record shop. So I've got loads of memories as a young kid. Uh, being in that record shop, we used to sit on the counter, me and my sister, with our legs dangling off the counter, you know, and listening to the, the records. People would come in and ask to have a record played before they bought it, and their yeah. grandpa or grandma would uh, play the record for them. There was a record player on the counter, you and make they, it- we just love that.
1: So you're making me feel very nostalgic for a time when I wasn't born.
2: I <laughs> uh, well, they were happy days, you know, simple uh, enjoyment of um, new things that that were appearing, like records, Yeah. you know, discs, vinyl. And um, so then me and my sister, we'd dash out the record shop, dash into the studio and start bouncing up and down on the floor in there and miming using the microphones, you know, and <laughs> generally messing about. And then um, Grandpa would come and tell us to... Uh, shift out of there. <laughs> so but what um, was he like?
1: He must have been quite a character to, at 60, decide that this was, you know, that this was something he ought to be doing. Yes. And 60 funny, then was yeah. a lot was a lot older than it is now.
2: Indeed. No, you're totally right there, Laura, yeah. And I, I wonder that myself, what inspired him. Grandma always said he had a brainwave, and that was how it was explained, that someone had come into the shop asking, could they cut a record? Because, um, you know, they used to have these booths in those days, didn't they, where I think there was one in NEMS, in Brian Epstein's family shop, record shop, Mm. where you could go into this little booth and cut like a two-minute disc of you saying something or singing.
1: Yeah, I think they've got one
2: now. And and then he had seen an advert in the newspaper. Because in those days, like the mid to late 50s, there were a lot of companies making um, tape recorders and disc cutting machines uh, in Britain. The biggest one was MSS, Master Sound Systems. My dad, who was um, Percy's oldest son, he, was, he had started working for EMI and he was working down doing a training course at uh, Hayes in Middlesex for EMI, learning to become an electronics engineer. And grandpa went to stay with him in uh, uh, 1955, like uh, June, July and he, and he bought this recording equipment, uh, a recording studio, three pieces, an amplifier with a mixing desk, a reel-to-reel quarter-inch tape recorder, and a disc cutting lathe, which, uh, you know, it was the latest technology. It was really good stuff. You know, he paid 400 quid for it, Wow. which in 1955 was, you know, about a year's wages for the average uh, working person. Yeah. So it was really good, good stuff. It's your turn to talk while I have a swig of my um, <laughs> mango juice.
1: I was wondering just what your what your granddad was like, like what his personality was like.
2: Aye, well, he was very nice. He was uh, mild mannered, you would say. You know, he was very professional. As a lot of um, people in those days, they took their work quite seriously in the sense that the, what they were producing had to be of really high quality. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he used to wear a, get up and wear a, a collar and tie. And like a brown shop coat, you know. Yeah. But he wasn't. He wasn't like dead smart in that sense. It, he was kind of relaxed looking, you know. Yeah. You know, he was very well liked and uh, respected in the in the area. And to, uh, regarding the family, he was a he was a great fella. You know, he was full of stories about uh, his life. He used to take an interest in us all, even when we were little. You know, the, me and my sister and my brother, mm-hmm. and his own children. You know, yeah. He was a very nice chap. I never knew him to be angry or shouty, or and he wasn't a big drinker or anything, you know. Yeah. He'd go down into town once a week with his brother Reg, Uncle Reg, and they'd uh, go in the in the Legs a Man or the uh, the Crown or wherever and have a pint, you know.
1: So what did, what does <laughs> so he have to say about the twelfth of July in nineteen fifty eight?
2: Well, he didn't remember it specifically because such people as them were coming in every day. Yeah, and he all, he thought it was all rather a terrible racket. <laughs> <laughs> The sound of these boys banging away on their um, instruments, washboards and things. He remembered um, when the Beatles, the Beatles came in in uh, nineteen sixty, John, Paul and George, mm-hmm. and they recorded a single-sided acetate of uh, one after nine oh nine. And he remembered that visit, but uh, the first visit by the quarrymen, they were just another group of group of boys, you know. And if you look at the logbook, you can see daily he was having these boys in, you know, teenage boys because you know John was 17 at the time Paul was you know 15 or 16 and George 14 or 15 and uh, yeah
0: you
2: know he was 63 in 1958 so he seemed very old to them and they they seemed very young to him although they did have a drum kit Colin Hampton who you mentioned earlier yeah he uh, he had a drum kit which was quite unusual so that would would have been quite memorable yeah and in fact, in spite of all the danger when you listen to it it's quite a country type sound it's got because uh, of course they were playing three uh, acoustic guitars although one of them was going George's I think was going through a, a little amplifier of Paul's basically an acoustic session as, you know, early rock and roll was all acoustic. One of Elvis's first oh, yeah. stuff was on acoustic guitar.
1: We haven't actually said what what was on the record yet, so it was, it was Buddy Holly's That Will Be The Day and In Spite Of All The Danger was the B-side. That's
2: correct. Yes, amazingly that, you know, looking back now, clearly that uh, Percy Phillips, you know, he was a real pioneer and that studio, my word, it's, you know... It is the history of that studio. I'm glad it's being told now because John, Paul and George made, that was the first professional studio they ever visited. first time they'd gathered around a professional microphone. It was the first record they ever made, side two, in spite of all the danger. It was the first time they recorded one of their own songs that they'd written. Also that song, in spite of all the dangers credited on the label, to McCartney Harrison, and that's the only example in the whole of the Beatles' canon that is credited to McCartney Harrison. Wow. So just from the Beatles' story alone, that studio and Percy Phillips were, it, you know, just that list of firsts that, that were, you know, when you think what uh, the Beatles went on to do and what each of the the guys went on to do in their own careers... When it comes to using studios and technology and um, selling records, you know, the biggest sales in history, the most famous band in history, that was where it started. That was their first one. So, you know, to Beatles fans, that's an amazing thing.
3: Yeah. It is
2: to me as well and to our family, you know, to realise that that took place in our family home. But Beatles aside, if we can say such a thing... (laughs) Of course. There were also many other firsts. It was the first recording studio in Liverpool, which I didn't realise until, you know, years later. It was the first, the place where Ken Dodd made his first ever record. OK. It was where Billy Fiori made his first ever record. Percy recorded the first ever football pop song in 1963 with Everton FC when they'd won the league that year and the team came in and sang this song that was specially written.
1: What was the song?
2: It was called E-V-E-R-T-O-N.
1: Okay. And it
2: was a a jolly song with a piano accordion and uh, drums and the team singing and a soloist that they'd hired in, singing all about where the the different fans came from, you know, whether it was Walton or Bootle or... It's a really good song. It's on the CD that I've released. Because this whole story, the reason that you and I are talking now, I suppose is because, well, my grandpa died in 1984 and he left all his studio equipment, which he had kept, you know, in good order, to me dad. And um, along with this um, box full of acetates, which he had collected during the 15 years the studio was open, grandpa had put various acetates in a box. And then when it closed, we found this box, you know, but then unexpectedly, my dad died um, in 1987, so I was left with all this stuff. Mm. So I was aware that, you know, these books that I'd read, uh, say, like Hunter Davis had written a book about the Beatles in the, in the 60s. Yeah. And they, uh, or anything you read or heard about the Beatles, no one had ever heard of Percy Phillips, or most people had never heard of the Quarrymen, mm. and they certainly didn't know that um, the Beatles had made their first record in this little... Uh, Uh, recording studio, Liverpool's first recording studio. So when I was left with all this stuff, I suddenly thought, you know, maybe I should endeavour to get Grandpa recognised for what he was, you know, Liverpool's first recording studio owner and the first um, producer ever to work with John, Paul and George, amongst all these other firsts. He did the first um, rendition of Musique Concrete, which um, was this mad music made up of, uh, if, well, I suppose you could call them samples, but in those days bits of tape cut up and stuck back together. And, and noises made by banging found objects and playing instruments in funny ways. My dad and grandpa demonstrated the first example of Musique Concrete in 1956 okay. at the Philharmonic Hall. And so there's just this huge list of, of firsts. So, so I thought to myself, well, no one's ever heard of him. I think I should try really to to get him. Is just deserts. So the way I started doing that is by putting the studio the studio equipment, which was all there, complete, in a Sotheby's auction mm-hmm. in London, which I did. So photographs of the studio appeared in the catalogue. And a brief story about the studio, that was in 1990. And so that was the first step, really, of getting his name known, you know, having it officially mentioned in this auction house catalogue. Yeah. The studio was actually bought by a chap called Tetsuo Hamada, who was the president of the Japanese Beatles fan club. Oh, wow. The Beatles Cine Club, as it was known. And he took it off to Japan that year, 1990. And so after that, coincidentally, well, the money that we got for that, we gave to Grandma so that she could, you know, at last say, oh, well, we've got a couple of bob for it anyway. And Mm. she then, you know, she lived to be 97, actually, Laura. She died in 2007. And that money helped her to, you know, have a few holidays in Landudno and what have you, and things she liked to do. Oh, that's so nice. So that was very good. She was a wonderful uh, lady, and we all miss her.
0: Oh, bad.
1: 70 tracks, isn't it, that that your grandfather recorded onto a vinyl record and CD? Is that right?
2: Aye, that's exactly right. Yeah. So people because, can hear um, it for
1: themselves then.
2: Yes, yes. Just the other day, I put the CDs on. There's four CDs in the box set, so it's you know it's a few hours of listening. Mm-hmm. But I put it on the other day and just listened to all four one after the other here in me flat through the hi-fi, and it just it's it's like a time machine. Because it's not all music. It's there's lots of spoken word stuff. You just sit there, and it's like it's they're like audio snapshots. If you like, you sit there and shut your eyes, and you can. All these recordings were all made in this one room in Liverpool over a 15 year period.
3: Mm.
2: And at that period, like 55 to 69, the world just changed, didn't it? Everything changed. For some reason, all these young people, uh, girls and boys as they reached their um, teenage years, they they decided to create their own culture. You know, for hundreds of years previously, young uh, boys and girls had just followed in their mum and dad's footsteps. You know, they'd worn the same clothes, gone and got the same jobs and were much like uh, mini-me's of their mums and dads.
3: Hmm.
2: But in that period, the mid-50s, it all changed and for some indefinable reason... The, the young people suddenly decided to create their own music, their own fashion, their own culture, which they did, you know, and it's now known as the swinging 60s, but it began in the 50s, you know, with people... Uh, I suppose we could blame Chuck Berry for, for it because, um, you know, it is was one of the first records, uh, Maybelline, that uh, turned on the younger Liverpoolians... Yeah. ..to rock and roll. Of course, we'd had Skiffle before that, but Yolani Donegan... yeah. And that sort of um, got a lot of, of young young people into, you know, using cheap or homemade instruments to make music, which was it was kind of the punk of its day in a way.
1: Like your washboards and things.
2: Yeah, exactly. T chest yeah, bass. bass. Yeah. But it was only about a year that lasted before you know John Lennon and his cohorts they had uh, Chuck Berry, you know, and Little Richard, and then they heard Elvis, and and then you know Buddy Holly and whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the world changed forever. And, you know, we should all be very uh, proud and aware of the fact that, you know, Liverpool was the place where that started. It's an amazing uh, story.
1: That's incredible. And it just seems like it was such an exciting time.
2: Yeah, just the first time. You know, those guys, some of them are still alive today. Well, obviously, Paul is, McCartney. But when we had our launch event for the CD and vinyl, at uh, the Adelphi on the 26th of August. That's like three and a half weeks ago now at the Beatles convention. Yeah. A few of these guys were there, like Owen Clayton, who was in made his first record with the, the Derek Clayton Skiffle Group in 1957, I think that was, at uh, Grandpa's studio. And there were loads of guys there who who made their first records. Mike Byrne was there. Um, he made his first record. It was just... These guys were pioneers, you know, they... They were going out on a limb. No one had done that before, you know, thrown on an old leather jacket and gone and played a tea chess bass in a pub, you know. And <laughs> it, was a, it was a whole new thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's still going on today, isn't it? Youth culture. You know, there wasn't any youth culture before that. It was all mum and dad culture.
1: And what was it like playing, playing the record for them at the convention?
2: Well, it... It is. It's stunning. As I say, it's like a time machine, Laura, because these, you know, each of the tracks lasts, you know, maybe a minute and a half. Some of them last four minutes. There's a couple that last um, about 12 or 13 minutes. Mm -hmm. And they they really do transport you back because some of them are uh, spoken word where you've got um, family members recording a message to to a, a, another family member that was going off emigrating to Canada Gosh. which a lot of people did in the 50s yeah. to Canada or Australia
1: what were they saying and, what was the message
2: well they are saying you know we're sorry to see you go and good luck in your new life in Canada and you can hear them sniffling you know so they'd take they take that with them
1: would, would they
2: yeah and they, and they and then they'd sing all sing a song you know one of the songs they sing is um, we'll meet again oh and um, it's very moving. And then yeah. you have got another recording that um, these all appear on the collection, another recording which was done at Christmas in 1955 where um, Grandma's mum and dad have come to Christmas dinner and uh, Percy's brought the recording machine up into the room, obviously, after dinner. And the, But, you know, well, I don't know if you do remember, but um, in their 50s and 60s, if you stuck a microphone in front of someone they'd go all uncomfortable yeah, and they'd kind of talk in a posh voice or what they thought was a, you know, a clearer, posher voice. Like people always used to have a telephone voice where, you know, you'd phone me and I'd say, hello, how are you? (laughs) And and give you a phone number, you know, and a telephone voice was a normal thing for people to have. Yeah. So the first couple of years, uh, things like that appear, you know, and there's also... um, a Rose Queen ceremony that he was invited to record at the church. Yeah. The local church in Kensington. And so you've uh, got it's a, a
1: real social history then and people wouldn't have been recorded yeah. in their in their sort of home environment. It would have all have always have been a a more formal situation, unlike now where we're recording everything all the time.
2: Yeah. Exactly. So there just people can't be many recordings like that. now without second thought. Wouldn't
1: they? Yeah. Incredible.
2: And thankfully, you know, we don't care nowadays so much about, you know, accents or where, you, you know, it used to be a very different society that we had to live in, you know, yeah. as people with northern accents. We were seen um, socially below the people with uh, with southern accents, you know, mm. posh southern accents. But that's, you know, that's long behind us now, hopefully. So then in the 1957, you start hearing um, rock and roll recordings, Johnny Guitar made his first disc there Mm -hmm. who later became the guitarist in Rory Storm and the Hurricanes of course with Wingo and um, he does like the little Richard song She's Got It takes one and a half minutes but it's just totally brilliant
0: Wow,
2: acoustic guitar uh, rock and roll and then you get uh, Billy Fury comes in in uh, May April of 1958 shortly followed by the, the Quarrymen and then throughout the 60s you just get all manner of different uh, pop groups coming in and recording, and uh, piano players, and he recorded church choirs, all manner of things. Uh, up to um, the later 60s, there were other studios open in Liverpool, but he still remained popular. You know, particularly with country music. Mm-hmm. There was a folk club in Liverpool called Samson and Barlow, which a lot of people will remember. Yeah, people from there used to come a lot to to make records. Willie Russell, the playwright, he made his first record there.
1: Ah, oh, right, okay.
2: Because he used to play uh, play on the folk circuit when he was. Uh, he
1: did, yeah. That's incredible. So such a range.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it it really is. It was wonderful to sit. You're really transported back in time because the quality. Obviously, some of the discs are a bit scratchy, but we have cleaned them up quite a quite a bit. And, you know, the scratchiness just adds to the atmosphere. <laughs> like you were saying acetate, with the pedal. You don't play them much. They last a long time. They're fragile in the sense that if you drop one, acetate discs, this is, yeah. if you drop one, it'll um, shatter, you know. Yeah. But if you don't drop them, they last for years. Obviously, all every recording on this collection is uh, at least 50 years old, you know. And the Quarrymen uh, recording, as you said earlier, is 60 years old this year. Yeah. In fact, it's funny that Paul uh, McCartney, he tweeted a picture, I don't know if you saw it, the day after we did our um, launch event, Paul tweeted a picture of himself sitting with the, uh, playing his, his Phillips acetate of the Quarrymen. Oh, Cause he wow. owns it now, of course, it's in his collection.
1: Yeah, he bought it back, didn't he?
2: That's right, yeah, from John Lowe. I've got a replica of it, which I, I showed at the exhibition. Because the exhibition, I'll tell you a bit about the exhibition that happened. It was it was a wonderful day, because as I, as I suggested earlier in our chat, I had been trying for many years to... Uh, get Grandpa recognised as um, the pioneer of Liverpool music that he was, you know, music recording and um, social recording. What were you saying? Social history? Yeah. And um, so that, that that was achieved, really, on uh, Sunday the 26th because, um, first of all, we had a, a new plaque made, a new blue plaque to commemorate Percy Phillips and the, the existence of the studio. And we had that unveiled by um, Carol... My auntie Carol, Carol Higgins, uh, Percy's daughter, Mm -hmm. and Julia Bird, who you'll know is uh, John Lennon's sister. Yeah. They unveiled uh, the plaque in the morning at our exhibition. And then um, we had a a, a gold disc version of Ken Dodd's first uh, disc made and put it in a frame with a nice brass plaque and that. Then we presented that to to Ken's uh, widow, uh, Lady Ann Dodd,
1: Mm-hmm. And what was, what was it? What was the recording?
2: The recording was um, Ken singing It Is No Secret, okay, which is one of his favourite religious songs because he just had the most amazing singing voice and I'm quite sure he would have become a professional singer had he not had the success as a ventriloquist and comedian, you know? Yeah. And he had that sort of humorous appearance which he played up to, didn't he, with his teeth and his hair?
1: Yeah, because he had gold discs and things, didn't he? Yeah. From way back.
2: Yeah, well, he was a singer. In fact, he was Grandpa's favourite singer. Ah. Grandpa used to love him singing. He he recorded him many times. But the gold disc that we made for Lady Anne was um, of his first ever. That was March 1957. Yeah, Yeah, and then Ken became successful and famous in Britain, you know, as a a ventriloquist and comedian. Mm -hmm. But then once, as you just um, indicated, once he'd become successful, he did actually record quite a few um, songs, two of which were were very uh, very popular in Britain. Happiness was a huge tune, wasn't it? Yeah. And in the seventies, uh, I suppose that was. And then um, Tears was another huge uh, hit for him. Yeah. So he always kept up the singing, and he used to go to church every week with uh, Anne and uh, you know sing in church.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He was quite a uh, you know religious spiritual guy.
0: Yeah. Oh, and it was so sad, movie. you
2: know, when he died earlier this year. It was a real, you know, it was really sad time in Liverpool, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, were very, even though sad. he was old, you know, and he and he had been unwell, it was still a terrible shock that he had gone. Yeah, It's hard and to we imagine. And we were hoping that here. he had come to our event at, at the Adelphi, but um, obviously that couldn't happen. Yeah. So we were very, very, very pleased that uh, Lady Anne agreed to come and receive this. Gold disc from us as a presentation, mm-hmm. so that was wonderful. So the people that we had in that room throughout the day, Laura, it was amazing. We had uh, another Beatles sister, Ruth. Uh, Paul's sister, Ruth, was there most of the day. Just all manner of him, um, journalists from around the world, you know, and Beatles fans who, some of whom had had heard of Percy Phillips because of the Quarrymen recording, but they didn't realise that he that he was a- actually had such a wide variety of. Things that he had achieved, you know, during those fifteen years, and or or also that he was like quite an old fellow when he opened the studio, and he had this whole other story to tell about when he had the battery service, and you know the history of Liverpool and Mm. the development of technology, you know, through it, it wasn't that long ago. That that was the point I was trying to make with the exhibition. Really, was that all this technology that we've got now? It really is actually quite new, you know, even cars. And airplanes, you know, and phones and things, it's, you know, it's all quite new, really. Our, our great-grandparents didn't have any of that stuff, you know, and it, it mm. was introduced to the world during, you know, our grandparents' uh, lives, and now it's just totally ubiquitous and normal, you know, to, oh, to yeah. have a phone or to book a flight or, you know, watch the telly. But I remember him telling me a story about when he bought his first telly in 1952, and him and my dad, they went and picked it up it was like a nine-inch uh, black and white TV tube, you know, mm-hmm. in a in a wooden cabinet with doors on it. He said they put it in the corner of the room in the in the house at thirty-eight Kensington there, and they opened these doors and switched it on, and and they just sat, they stood there laughing, saying to each other, "No, this w- what what is this? No one's going to sit in a room watching a little box like that with a <laughs> fuzzy image on it. How is this ever going to become?" You know, successful are part of our lives.
1: Little did they know. <laughs>
2: yeah, little did they know. That's the, the the story of technology, really, isn't it? You know, yeah. The people who who uh, see it first don't necessarily see its value. You know. So just to go back, you mentioned that the Beatles returned to the studio. Yeah, that's right. In um, 1960, they came with George's friend, Arthur Kelly. And that's how we know the story, really, because Arthur remembered it well. In Mark Lewison, who's uh, what they refer to as a Beatles author, he was at the convention interviewing various people like uh, Patty Boyd and uh, Tony Bramwell, you know, to hear their Beatles stories. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, Mark Lewison wrote a book, uh, a new book called Tune In about the really detailed sort of minute-by-minute story of the Beatles. I think it came out maybe four or five years ago or something. Yeah, that's right. But I read it anyway, and and this story is in there about how Arthur Kelly tells Mark Lewison that um, the three of them went back to Percy's studio in 1960 to record this single-sided acetate of uh, One After 909, John's Mm -hmm. uh, song which he had written years before. But that acetate has never been found, so it's still out there somewhere if it uh, if it still exists.
1: Ah, so it could crop up and, one day. Um,
2: yes, it's a very interesting one, that, yeah, because that will have been a 7-inch acetate at 45 RPM, whereas the Quarrymen one is 10-inch uh, at uh, 78. Because mm-hmm. from about 1959 or so, Grandpa started cutting on 7 inches at 45 RPM. So that was another thing that was changing, you know. In society, people had been buying these big, heavy acetate 10 inch discs and when vinyl was discovered a uh, pvc you know and uh, it was much more flexible and he, you could cut the grooves closer together so you could make a smaller disc and you know the introduction of vinyl in america that it really changed the uh, record manufacturing
1: mm. so what do you think your grandfather would make of of all this attention now
2: well yes i wonder he wasn't a great social socialite you know but I think he, because what was so wonderful to me and to the family members who attended at the Adelphi, we had this room, the Empire Room, for our exhibition. We had the whole room just for our exhibition and we had a merchandise shop in there where we were selling the the CD and the vinyl and some bits of merchandise that we'd made, um, pens and T-shirts, baseball caps and stuff, which were going very well. And we had the blue plaque there, beautifully mounted, Mm. and the presentation of the gold disc. And we had several display cabinets around the room, which was a, it's an octagonal room, Laura. It's a beautiful room, wood-panelled octagonal room. And we displayed it all with um, these display cabinets with lots of the acetates were on display from uh, from my archive. And other things were on display, such as the Quarrymen disc replica,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: um, Percy's birth certificate, some letters that, um, because Carol, Percy's daughter, was a friend of George's um, you know in those days and when he was uh, they first went to Hamburg George used to write to her regularly and so there were a couple of letters I put on display uh, that George wrote in the Star Club in Hamburg it says at the top Star Club Hamburg and the date in 1962 December and he had written to Carol about saying you know the band's going well and we're going to get signed up and we've, we've got a TV show to do in Scotland and I'll see you at the Grafton next Friday and, you know, things like this in these letters. So wow. they were on display. It's amazing. The logbook from the studio uh, was on display along with lots of blow-up um, reproductions of the pages, you know, mm-hmm. because I've got the logbook from 1955 to 1958, which has got Ken Dodd, Billy Fiore, The Quarrymen, swinging blue jeans, black diamonds, all sorts of people who visited the studio. Grandpa was quite a meticulous record keeper, actually. That's he great. He liked to keep, <laughs> uh, keep his business notes uh, in order. So it was just really beautiful experience to have all these people, you know, and lots of journalists, of course, and um, flashing cameras in this, this lovely room, put on a, an exhibition that was... I just felt it was full of respect for Grandpa, you know, sort of giving him his due... Yeah. We weren't making any huge claims or anything. You know, it was just a respectful exhibition dedicated to Percy Phillips and his studio, yeah. told in a in a thoughtful way by his own family. And so, um, we were, it was very satisfying to do that. After you know, it's like thirty years I've been working on it in a way. But I'll tell you quickly how how it came to be because. I put a website online about 10 years ago, I think it was in 2008, called um, com. I put that up, you know, for people who might be interested in a sort of historical record. And if you go there to look at it now, that's what it is. It's a few pages of the basic story of the studio, you know, and a few photos and that. Yeah. So that, that was there for 10 years. And then... About eighteen months ago, I got a phone call from this fella called Pete Goodall, and it turned out that he had made a recording at Grandpa's studio in 1963 with his group called Savour and the Democrats. He then went. Pete then went on to um, use that disc to to get a contract as a, a, a musician, you know. And then he went. He's in his seventies now, but he spent the the sixties and the seventies as one of Britain's top session players, guitarists, you know. Yeah. He played on loads of uh, hits throughout the 60s and 70s. He was one of the guys who was always in Abbey Road as uh, doing sessions.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And he runs this record company now, Speakeasy Recordings. And the most amazing part was that the record that he made, which he hadn't seen or heard for 50 years, I actually had it in my archive, this 7-inch huh. 45 uh, acetate of his group Saver and the Democrats performing these four rock and roll songs, one of which was Shaking All Over, another one there, uh, Love Me Like a Hurricane. Really good renditions, you know, really well-recorded. They sound really bright and uh, sparky. They sound great.
3: Brilliant.
2: So anyway, so Pete came over to see me and I gave him a digital copy of his, of his recordings. And we ended up signing a contract, and it's him who's um, his record company that's uh, that's put the project uh, together. He and I uh, have, um, you know, produced and directed it. I've written all the sleeve notes and the various bits of things that needed writing, and um, I've got this huge collection of photographs and stuff from the studio. We put it all together, and... Uh, There it was released for the first time, and it went went really well. Actually, the CD and the vinyl—they're doing—they're doing doing very well.
1: Peter, that's been so interesting.
2: Thank you so much. That was just oh, all right. I just wanted to say hello. I mean, all the best to your listeners. Brilliant, and uh, good luck with your project. There, it sounds great.
1: Thanks, Peter. Take care. Bye. All
2: right. All the best (laughs) today.